I want to see what that dad bot can do out there. I manhandle that little baby. Hello there, you beautiful, beautiful bastards. It is football and other F words. We're happy to be with you because the Titans won and we don't have to complain today, which is very nice. Uh, we're going to do a little complaining, but it's going to be objective complaining. I'm your host, Michael Gillum. I'm joined as always by Zach Lyons. We're brought to you by broadwaysportsmedia.com. Get over there and check us out and grab yourself a membership today. Zach, how are you today? Uh, Titans victory uh, has is pretty much the only positive thing I'm clinging to through the football weekend. It is, it is giving me life. It is keeping me motivated to get out of bed every morning. This is, this is the problem. God, I'm, I'm about to sound like an actual therapy session. This is the problem with gambling on football is that despite the fact that we just had a fantastic NFL weekend. And the, like you said, the Titans victory is sustaining that you and I specifically on straight bets and parlays, had one of the worst betting weekends I've ever seen. And it, it was it, so annoying. It was it was the worst. And it, it picked up where it left off last week on where the Ravens lost to the Raiders where they shouldn't have at all. So I mean, maybe they should have because the Raiders are apparently pretty good. But that that cost me at a chance of twenty one hundred dollars. And then this weekend, just last night alone, I could have had fifteen hundred dollars if uh, Devontae Adams just scored one touchdown. That's it. I got everything else right, except for a Devontae Adams touchdown, which is supposed to be automatic. I get to Detroit Lions defense. That sucks. I I just, the things I need to remember going forward, and never again will I bet the Steelers money line ever. I should have learned that last year because they got me a few times. Kansas City's defense may not be what we thought it was going to be. In other words, it they're going to look so people bad. Score. They're so bad. Uh, and yeah, no, no more, no more betting one single anytime touchdown on Devontae Adams and then watching a running back score four times. Can't do that. Depressing. But, but the Manning cast was so good yeah. that I just kind of forgot about it. We're, we're definitely going to discuss that at the end of the show. But we got to discuss this Titans victory. Uh, 33-30 in overtime, which is not something I thought I would found my found my find myself saying. Through the first two quarters, I was definitely doing the like face palm, face in my hands emoji. I I, w- I was done. I, I tweeted out some stupid video about the how mad the O line was making me, which actually the O line had a pretty good game. But Titans do it on the back of Derrick Henry, and that's where I want to start. It, it, someone posted a picture pregame of a sign that a fan in the stands had that was that it posted his stats from the previous week said that Henry was an old man and washed up and the well, man rips off that. Yeah. It was like, I forgot what his stats were, but it was, it basically said Derek Henry's old and washed. I would love to see what happened to that fan by the end of the game, but Henry rips off three touchdowns, 187 yards, 200 plus when you include receptions, which by the way, the man catches passes now. Can we discuss that part first? <laughs> He's always been able to, it's just that they never put him in a position to do it. And right. and everybody uh, just automatically assumes that he can't 
just because they don't ever put him in that position. I, I, it's been an unfair narrative in my opinion. Yeah. Did, was he, a, and I genuinely don't remember. I remember a lot about his um, Alabama stints, but it's like highlights of his running. Was he a pass catcher in college? No, I mean, here's the thing about Derrick Henry. He is a, you know, 6'3", 250-pound running back, and, and I'm exaggerating a little bit on his weight, but you, you don't use him that way, right? I mean, you're talking about a guy that only had, I think, 17 receptions in college, um, so he's never uh, really been known to do it, but he's never really also had to do it. Like, in college, basically, you're talking about a guy that, just got the ball and just ran for touchdowns, right? I mean, like, or ran yeah. for big chunks of yards. You, you never really were put in a position when you're in Alabama to have to be a pass catcher. You know, Najee Harris is a different animal. And and it's the same thing here. He He's not really needed for the Tennessee Titans to be a pass catcher. Is it nice that he's a pass catching, that he can catch the ball and and turn it and, and do that? Yeah. But we still saw that in this game that they still were hesitant to keep him in in important third down situations and still put Josh McNichols in. I don't get it. He is a competent pass blocker and he's a competent pass catcher. I don't understand it, but it it was nice to see. We'll probably never see that again. (laughs) (laughs) What I really like about Henry, as if it needs to be said anymore by now, but that he's he's so quietly aggressive. There's not a lot of pomp and circumstance with you know, he doesn't celebrate. You know he did. I mean he just gets that really creepy, huge shit eating grin with his eyes wide open when he's running, and that's about the most emotion he shows when he's running. But I, I gotta say, was it Quandry Diggs that he burned to the outside yeah. with that like 61 yard touchdown? To watch that man bounce off the turf like a basketball and then get up and pull his helmet off and throw it on the sidelines, that's the kind of frustration that Henry builds. And I I think and I assume it's because he doesn't look like he's moving that fast, but Quandry was running all out, flat out to try to catch him, thought he had an angle on him, dove, and just bounced off his ankles in the man's wake. Buck Rising said on his show yesterday that he basically booped a grown man. And that's exactly what he did. He just kind of slapped him on the nose a little bit as he ran by. And it just infuriated Diggs. And that's that to me is that's the Derrick Henry effect when he just go ahead. Well, I was going to say, well, I mean, Diggs is frustrated because he knows he's going to, you know, after the game, get thousands of texts and, and memes right. made and all this stuff. Because I don't know if you watch the top 100. You know, we're, we're very anti-top 100 NFL players, right? Very, very. I actually did not. because. But at one day, uh, there wasn't anything on TV, and I just turned on the TV while I was cooking, and it was actually the top uh, five or whatever, and Derrick Henry's on there. And they all talk about the stiff arm. I mean, they all talk – all the other players talk about the stiff arm. And if you're on the receiving end, you know you're going to make the highlights every time, and your body – your head slamming to the ground or your body being thrown is going to be the talk of the week and probably an angry run, right? (laughs) Probably an angry run winner. So, you know, that's why he's frustrated. I don't think he's really as frustrated about the touchdown as he is about that. He's going to be embarrassed for at least a couple of weeks. Right. 
And it's it, it, it kind of encapsulates and really contradicts frustration, really kind of put a face on the frustration of the Seahawks defense, probably the Seahawks fan base as well of this is what Derrick Henry does to you. And I always go back to the story, but when I really started to see Baltimore's fan base come apart when I was in that, you know, when I was at the playoff game in early 2020 before the world came apart, <laughs> that uh, you heard the fan base coming apart because Derrick Henry keeps gouging and gouging. And then all of a sudden the big runs start ripping off. And so the Titans needed that. The Titans needed someone to step up. That's exactly what Henry did. And to, to kind of counterpoint that from the previous week where you and I talked about, and it was a talking point that Derek was on the sidelines and he was you know going off and getting in the face of the offense. And we were just like, whoa, we've never seen that. Never seen that out of this man. There you have it. He, he stood up. He literally had to put the team on his back and he provided that spark and drive to keep pushing forward. It's just, I, I don't, we said this all through last year. I'm never surprised when Derek does this. And yet I come away surprised every time I, I spend an hour after the game, just reading various Reddit threads. Some of the, the stats you all were posting the one from NFL research, which I'm completely blanking on now about where he stands against all these hall of fame running backs from, it was like a multi-score games. The man's literally putting up Hall of Fame numbers right in front of our eyes. So if you take nothing away from this podcast, just understand what you're watching right in front of you right now. Derrick Henry is probably one of the most special players we'll ever have on our team. Enjoy it. Watch it. Enjoy it. Soak it in because you're not going to get another Derrick Henry. <laughs> and and the opposing defenses know it, right? Yeah. That That's what's so amazing when you see teams <clears throat> that are built around the run game still are productive around the run game. It's not that, okay, it's not like the Ravens where it's Lamar Jackson, Gus Edwards, you know, J.K. Dobbins, and it's it doesn't matter, right, who's back behind as a running back, Tyson Williams, Latavius Murray, Devontae Freeman. They have all these running backs back there. It's not the threat of Lamar Jackson and a running back that here in Tennessee, it's the threat of, of being able to run it. It's the threat of Derrick Henry. And everybody knows it. Everybody across the league, players, coaches, everybody knows that Derrick Henry is going to get the ball a lot and he's going to touch the ball a lot. And they, they, for the most part, nine times out of 10, they're, they're not going to be able to do anything about it. And he's traditionally not that great in September from an efficiency standpoint. He's very good this past um this past Sunday, but traditionally he needed like 30, you know, a bunch of carries and, and all this to squeak out some meager yards per attempt. And this week was totally different. And the other thing is, is that if it wasn't for Todd Downing sticking with the threat of the run and still calling run plays all the way through the first half, this offense probably wouldn't have clicked in the second half. And that that is what I think needs to be said. Am I happy with his play calling? Not necessarily, because I think he needs to be more creative. I think also Todd Downey needs to stop doing long developing routes down the field. But, you know, A.J. Brown had three drops on this, and I think there were six drops in total. 
And if it wasn't for his game plan in the first half, the game plan in the second half wouldn't have worked. And Derrick Henry went off because they kept forcing the threat, no matter how far they were down or felt like they were running behind the Seahawks, they stuck with the run. And we've seen Art Smith do that a lot last year. And it all, and it, again, it doesn't always work, but it works for the most part. And it was a good thing that he did that. And it's not a perfect game by anybody, by these coaches or anything, but it was a pretty damn good game to gauge and rebound against because there was so, there's so much to talk about about this game to break down from individual defensive performances and individual offensive performances, coaching decisions, motivation. I mean, there's so much going on in this game and you, but you're right. It's it. Derek Henry is just, he's otherworldly and we call people out on their bad takes. We name names. I'm going to name names for a good take that I can get behind. And typically he has the worst, one of the uh, track record for some of the worst takes on Twitter, but at High Pockets, uh, Kevin, at High Pockets 84, I believe, on Twitter, said that Derrick Henry is the best Titans, go debate a wall or something. And I agree. Derrick Henry, is, is to me, is the greatest Titan of all time right now. I, From an on-field performance standpoint, he is the greatest Titan to lace up the cleats. And there is no reason right now that he doesn't, with, a, with an extra game, doesn't break 2,000 yards again and snatch some souls along the way. Yeah, I mean, he's he's on pace. I may butcher this a bit because I don't have it in front of me, but he's on pace to, to hit 2,040 yards now. I mean, on the back of that performance. And we'll see. And, and going forward, even if his production does drop off into the low to mid-1500s, he's right in line with where you would want a running back at at this point in his career, or not in this point in his career, where most NFL teams expect running backs to be based on the current NFL game. But I do agree with that take. I, I believe he's the, he's the greatest Titans player to put on a uniform. And I am co- very comfortable saying that now let's, let's switch to more individual player talk with Julio Jones. I, I, I want to start with this piece right here. Cause it does drive me nuts. I, I, I we have made a par- proclamation on this podcast before that, we're done talking about the national media, ignoring the Titans. I, I, I don't I just don't care anymore. Right. But it does kind of drive me nuts when I see the national media pick up on a narrative that's not true, which was Mike Vrabel cussed out Julio Jones. Mike Vrabel savaged his new star wide receiver in the media. None of these things happened. Mike Vrabel simply said when he got a penalty, we chalked that up. That's an example of. Stupid shit that hurts us on the field. And I may be saying that not correct, but he basically said the phrase stupid dumb shit. shit, dumb shit. That's it. That's all he said. And Mike has said multiple times, he even said it to the media leading up to the Seahawks game. Guys, I don't come out here and say anything to you that I'm not going to say to a player or haven't already said to them already. So yes, he certainly probably had that talk, maybe with more colorful language behind the scenes, but we don't know that for a fact. So it drives me nuts when I hear pundits and I heard this, it was post game on CBS of man, that, that whole Vrabel thing about just bleepity bleep Julio Jones. And then they said it again yesterday on a uh, good morning football, that whole man, just bleep you Julio Jones speech. And I'm just like, that's not what happened. But I say that to say this Julio Jones responded 
he definitely got the message of I've you know got to pick up the tempo. I've got to be effective. My hands have to work today. And it showed. Now I'm going to credit him with a touchdown. I know that's a, <laughs> I know that's debatable, but the, the whole thing about the heel just being a sliver out of bounds, I, I think in the modern day NFL, it's way too easy to watch it frame by frame and make a, a controversial call where even 10 years ago, that would have just been ruled a touchdown and we move on. But nevertheless, yeah, it's a dumb rule. It's a and, dumb rule. And, and that's where I land on it because it ultimately I don't think the NFL is going to issue an apology this week. Right. Uh, and, right. and that cost me money too, by the way, <laughs> uh, they're not going to issue an apology on it because they think they saw enough, whatever they saw, they saw enough that his foot landed out of bounds. It's the stupidest freaking rule. It's like that rule that was in the preseason where Rashad Weaver got a penalty in, in a kickoff or something. It's a rule that I never heard of. I know that you have to get two feet in bound, but I always thought that if you got the two toes, it was yes. over with. But now you got to fall forward for the two toes to work or fall some different way. Like, give me a fucking break. It's it's ridiculous. And this is the game that Julio Jones needed to have after an abysmal performance last week. And I, I'm very happy to see it. And if it wasn't for Ryan Tannehill and Julio Jones being on the same page, this could have been an entirely different game. Yeah. And, and, and let, let, let's, I want to talk on that because I want to talk about Derrick Henry again, just for a little bit. If it wasn't for Ryan Tannehill and Julio Jones pushing the ball down the field and there being play action, Derrick Henry wouldn't have had those running lanes either. Like it is a sim offense is a symbiotic thing. In the game, you you have to have certain things work to make certain other things work. And Julio Jones had 100 yards going into halftime, of just a little bit over 100 yards going into halftime. That is huge for what the Seahawks are probably going in and doing. Their halftime adjustment probably revolved around stopping Julio Jones. That is huge, and that was the point of having Julio Jones, and it's the point, supposedly, of having A.J. Brown and Julio Jones, which we'll talk about A.J. Brown in a minute. But once A.J. Brown gets his yips corrected, and then now you got Julio Jones with his little correction, now there's a Julio Jones good game, a Derrick Henry good game, and the same game you see a Titans win. Now if you get an A.J. Brown good game with those two guys, now you're getting it, and the defense is looking good. This is exactly what we needed to see from Julio Jones. And it was great to see that him and Ryan Tannehill are on the same page. Their timing's down. Probably not perfect, right? I mean, you, there were some throws that could have been a little bit better or some routes that could have been ran a little bit better. But this is what you needed to see after an abysmal week one. And it, it really, to me... I, I'm glad to see it because week one, I started to buy into the narrative that a lot wanted to make a big deal out of, which was, is the lack of practice, AKA training camp, AKA uh, preseason, is, is that hurting? Should Julio Jones and Tannehill been out there together more? I was almost starting to lean towards, yeah, maybe that's the case, but I, I kind of go back to, no, I should have trusted the fact that, someone like Tannehill and someone like Julio Jones would have figured this out. Right. Yeah. And that, and that's what was my whole point is that yeah. it's, it's a hall of fame. 
wide receiver with a damn good quarterback, they'll get on the page quicker sooner than later. Right. right. And, you know, the other, mm. the other 11 had as, or the other 10 people were what I had more problem with. I wasn't, I always stuck with, I'm not too concerned that Julio Jones and Ryan Tannehill can get on the same page quickly. Right. And it, they did. No, absolutely. And, and kudos to that take, because that's, that's a responsible objective way to look at it. it's the correct way to look at it because that makes sense that a veteran quarterback and a veteran wide receiver are going to pair up and sync up quicker but to go back to your point about the symbiosis it may not be the complete definition of complementary football but that's one of the bases of it is that within your offense if one piece is causing the the opposing team's defense problems that's going to open up someone like Derrick Henry and that's a that's a bad problem to open up. Derrick Henry is the worst case scenario to have a secondary problem open up. And that is what the national media, that's what the local media, that's what we kind of assumed all summer of. How do you game plan for a three-headed monster led by Derrick Henry and the combination of Tannehill and those two wide receivers? Well, and we're not even talking about Ryan Tannehill. It, that was the quietest 347-yard performance I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Nobody's talking about that. In fact, until just now, <laughs> I didn't even realize that he had thrown for 347 yards. And I have him on my fantasy team because of the freaking fumble and lack of touchdowns. But he threw for 347 yards, and he had a touchdown taken away. He had six drops. Yeah. We're talking about a guy that if if A.J. Brown had caught at least one or two of those passes, a guy that was probably approaching 400 yards passing, and we're not even talking about it. And we're we're definitely going to get to Tannehill because I've got to get to, to A.J. Brown first because to, to contrast off of Julio Jones' performance, which you know, Julio Jones on the stat line, six for 128, uh, averaging 21 yards you know, per reception, plus or minus a touchdown, however you want to look at it, he had a, a good day, a solid day of what you'd want to see out of a receiver versus A.J. Brown, three for 43, no touchdowns. But what that stat line does not tell you is how many drops he had. He had at least four drops, three drops, and they were bad. They were like needed catches at the time. The man clearly has the ups. I, I'm pretty sure it'll go away. Tannehill was asked post game, you know, do you have a conversation with Julio at that point? You know, what, what do you say to Julio? And he basically just said, look, I'm going to keep throwing you the ball. And, and that's exactly what, what every quarterback, most quarterbacks would tell you is that a wide receiver gets the ups, gets the drops. You're going to keep targeting them because you need them to come out of it. Running backs can play angry. Wide receivers can play angry. Quarterbacks have to be calm. <laughs> so a quarterback can't overreact and stop going to that wide receiver because he can actually make the situation worse. But who, AJ, boy, Henry and Julio bailed you out, my friend. You got to figure out how to wrap those fingers around the ball, man. Well, I mean, AJ Brown, even his family, you know, texted him after the game saying they couldn't even, <laughs> he couldn't even catch COVID. I mean, it was bad. Bird. <laughs> it was bad, but we've seen this before. We, yeah. we saw this during the Colts game, and there was a couple of maybe games strung in a row where A.J. Brown had the yips. It, this is what I'll say about A.J. Brown is at least the Titans won. Yeah. Because if the Titans hadn't have won, it would have 
we you could have almost pointed squarely to the point of AJ Brown. You could have thrown in the refs because the refs were pretty bad this whole game. But also AJ Brown dropping these three passes, they were some big passes too. They would have they were chain moving passes for the most part, and they were deep down the field. The uh it's it, it was bad. But I will say this is that you should be betting the over on A.J. Brown and A.J. Brown anytime uh, on his over on the yards, over on the receptions, and an A.J. Brown anytime this week because going up against the Colts after what I saw Cooper Cup do to them with A.J. Brown, Julio Jones, and Derrick Henry, this is a, a bound to be a fantasy massacre uh, coming into Nissan Stadium. And let's talk about Nissan Stadium real quick because we didn't talk about it last week after that loss. Do you, what do you think the fans after going up into Seattle and winning, and then there was the abysmal week one home loss. How do the fans respond as far as attendance goes Lebowski with the Colts? Cause there's this mystique around that the Colts are, you know, still this team that is probably going to beat us, uh, beat the Tennessee Titans and stuff. So what do you think? What's what is, what is the fan attendance? I still, I, I think the fan attendance holds up. I, I, I think it'll be as good as it was week one. I, I, I still feel that you're the Titans fans, the, the majority that will go fill the stadium know enough to know that week one is now an aberration and then they should show up. But I am like you, there's a little piece of me that thinks in the back of my head, like, when I think about the Colts, uh, my mind automatically goes to, dude, are we going to go one and one against them <laughs> this year? You know, it drives me up. Well, I even said early in the game, because I'm an idiot and overreactive that, well, you can go ahead and, and count the fact that we're going to lose one of the Colts this year. Cause I was, I was all up in my feelings as the children like to say, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I would say I'm going to lean towards good fan attendance. Um, and to back up to what you said about AJ Brown, I will absolutely put my money where my mouth is. We saw it all today. I'm definitely dropping some anytime touchdown bets, maybe a couple of parlays involving him. I can tell you, you can take that one to the bank. Now, if that bet loses, I will delete my Twitter and you won't hear from me again on this podcast. But, <laughs> but like, but to be a stand up man, I'm definitely going to go bet that he should go off and I expect him to go off. And I think if you look at most any wide receiver throughout their career, they have these moments in their career. They have a game where it just is not working for them. And that's, I don't think there's anything to freak out about. I think the guy's just in his head a little bit. It's a bit of a slower start than he likes. And I'm sure he'll get it together because he has the evidence to back up that he can catch and catch well and catch under pressure. It's not like some wide receivers you see where you're hoping that they grow out of this phase of, of drops that lasts for game over game or half a season or whatever it is. That's not the case with him. He has, he has limited, um, limited times that this has happened. And I believe this is one of these. It's just a bad time to have it. Like you said, the win definitely helps overshadow it, which I'm glad to see because there were multiple things with this team that you're glad to see a win overshadow that Taylor Lewan doesn't play. I'm thinking, I mean, there it is. It's just going to be another little piece that we're just going to be talking about a Titans loss and Lewan's out and that kind of thing. No, the win helps overshadow Julio, or Julio, my God, AJ Brown's drops. And I think it is what it is. And I think he's going to have a big game next week and you're going to forget all about it. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I I don't think it's anything to worry about or anything to really cling to and carry with you throughout the week. I think it'll be something that is is going to be motivation. And he's rebounded after this before. We we've seen this happen. So I got to talk about coaching because sure. on the face of it. If you just look at the end result, if you just tuned in the last five minutes, you're like, damn, this game's this team's rolling. But this was definitely a this was definitely a car cartwheeling across the finish line in first place. <laughs> I mean, the, you look at Mike Vrabel and <clears throat> his performance, quote unquote, and his post-game speech basically goes into like, look, this is who we are. Week one is not an example of who we are. It may not have been pretty, but we got to this point together as a team. Yeah, and they did. But man, both Downing and Bowen had large chunks of the game. At one point early in the game, I said, I think I might be done with Bowen. Like, I I think this might be it for me. But it's like they won and they found ways to correct their own shitty performance despite their shitty performance. Let's start with Downing. Did he have a good game or not? Let, let's start there. <laughs> I, I would say it was a it was a C plus game. I, I think the end result, when you really dive into the numbers of it, I think visually, I think predictability is what holds my grade back a little bit. I, I just find that he is still a little bit too predictable. And like I said, I still do not like the long developing routes when your offensive line is uh, is. Not that great. And and I will say this, the offensive line this week is it was much better than last week, but this offensive line didn't have to go against J.J. Watt, Chandler Jones, and all those linebackers over in Arizona. is a totally different defense. So I, I think predictability of the offense is really holding them back. Maybe it's a comfort issue. Maybe they had to limit the, um, the playbook just a little bit because they were like, okay, well, Taylor Lewan just, you know, isn't going to be able to be out there. Now Anthony Ferkser isn't going to be out there either. They were both game time decisions to not be active. So maybe they had to change that plan. Like that's something we have to consider is that they have to change the plan based on who's out there. But then when you start looking at the numbers, you know, like I said, Ryan Tannehill, 347 yards, Derrick Henry, 180 something on the ground getting multiple people involved that normally wouldn't be involved, like McNichols and Michael Pruitt, they, they had big chunks of the game. And not to mention this, the five drops that uh, I just looked it up. PFF has five drops uh, listed. You know, to me, that and then you look at, you know, the blocking and everything. Overall, it's not a bad performance. And you have to wonder how much is the predictability based on the personnel that was not active last minute and how much was left on the field from the drops. And maybe C plus is a little bit harsh. Um, maybe it's really B minus or a B game, but really the, the play calling was much better than week one, in my opinion. And that's all you, you can really hope for is to show an improvement from bad game to good game. And now you have had a a very, very good game offensively statistic-wise and what you saw in the field-wise. Now we need to see the Tennessee Titans build upon that, Todd Downey, build upon that against the Colts and really take them to the woodshed offensively. Yeah, and 
I I did like to see, you know, just one piece in particular, the the complete lack of play action in the first yes. week, and then all of a sudden play action returns. So it's like, you know, there was definitely some <clears throat> introspective I'd look back at their own performance, Todd's own performance, and he definitely made some changes. But you are right, is that predictability is a very bad thing to have on an offense. And it's something that can definitely, definitely cause problems. The defense can start to read into it. You know, one of the things I really liked watching again about this Monday night football game was Peyton Manning and it's Peyton Manning. The man's a walking football supercomputer. He's always been that way, but watching him kind of react to and almost kind of call plays before Green Bay even did it. I really enjoyed seeing that. He went on a whole long thing about, you know, look, <clears throat> the defense is stacked up in a way that you can keep running your run game, stay patient here, you know, stay a little unpredictable. That's the kind of thing I like to see and hear. And so when you contrast that to what Downing's doing, that's something that predictability could come back to bite him if they don't get a little more creative on the offensive side of the ball. But you are right. Maybe C C plus is is a little harsh. It's probably in the B range, but <clears throat> it's certainly a lot better than the first week. But it's like, like I said, it it's like a car, a stock car winning, but it's cartwheeling across the finish line because there were moments in this game that the offense looked a little problematic. Well, we 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 saw him run from go from five percent play action passes a week one, like you said, where there's just five dropbacks to now fourteen dropbacks that were play action. And um, it was um, 35%. So they jumped up really big and it worked. See, that's the thing is that first off, your run game does not have to work for their for play action to work. And technically your offensive line doesn't have to be great for play action to work. Now they need to be better than dog shit like they were the week one. But play action is supposed to keep people from biting on certain things, right? For for the defense to bite on certain stuff. And play action can work when you're not bootlegging and running your quarterback straight into fucking Chandler Jones unblocked. So, you know, when I posted that thing last week about play action being bad, everybody's like, whoa, you know, he had a sack fumble on that one play action. Well, he... The it was a, just a dumb play call. It wasn't the fact that it was play action. It was the fact that that play action play was just a dumb idea. However, this week they did thirty five percent, one hundred sixty two yards, eighteen yards per completion, and all three incompletions that were done in play action were drops. That is huge, and that's a huge turnaround. Play action and the run game have to be the bread and butter of this offense and it, it shows it's just undeniable it is undeniable that you have to make those things work and we all complained all week once we saw that five percent of play action plays that he wasn't running enough play action in fact a few people tagged him in that tweet like first off don't get in my tweets and tag players and tag coaches they don't that. give a shit they don't give a shit it's 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 very it's just juvenile and unprofessional. Secondly, the it, maybe maybe it worked. I don't know, but they listened. But I think it just comes down to what they're comfortable with, and they were comfortable running more play action this week than they were last week. And 
I think it I think it was a really great it was a great bounce back game as far as the whole game versus whole game for uh Todd Downing. And there's still a lot of room to grow. Well, let's switch over to, to defense. Did same simple question. Did Shane Bowen have a good game? Yes. Now, did he have a good whole game? No. But it was a tell of two halves. That second half was a game changer. And I think what you're seeing is the emergence of Christian Fulton allowing this defense to do what it wanted to do last year that it couldn't do, which was they didn't have the, and we heard it all last year, they didn't have the coverage consistency that they were looking for to be able to send some different kinds of looks and pressures and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, Danico Autry had a great game. Harold Landry is continually is right now arguably having a really great year. But Christian Fulton is allowing them to do a lot more than anything anybody else is on this team because Christian Fulton is basically taking out a receiver the whole game. Now, I know that the Freddie Swain touchdown is technically credited to him, and there has been a big debate in our group chat between Superhorn, Justin Graver, Mike Herndon, Jonathan Boren. They all have different viewpoints of this play. I think ultimately the blame does rest on Christian Fulton is where they landed, but it seems to me that due to the um, the crowd noise that I think Kevin Byard was trying to communicate something to both Christian Fulton and Chris Jackson, and probably that one's on the crowd. Like the crowd was so loud, I don't think the communication went through, and so there was sort of a miscommunication on that play. Technically, then Christian Fulton's fault, but I think it could. I don't think it's. I think it's just an anomaly, so it's nothing I'm too worried about. And what I'm what I'm more interested in is how he treated DK Metcalf, which he only allowed DK Metcalf one catch, and he was all mentally inside DK Metcalf's head. Yeah, and that's huge. You want a corner to be inside the head of the offensive player, and especially an offensive player like DK Metcalf, and it's it's huge and. I think the the big issue that you that you have on this defense is they're still not playing too aggressively as far as the defensive corners, you know, not putting up a lot of pressure up on there. And 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 really probably against Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf, you don't want to do that. You want to see them be a little bit more aggressive there and you want to see some quicker developing blitzes, not these blitzes that are really off the ball for two, for you know starting from like five yards back, you want to get some more blitzes up into the front and hide your coverages a little bit better. But Shane Bowen's first half was, was not great. And they still have a problem with putting Elijah Molden on these, in these weird matchup situations where he is not ready for that. Eventually Elijah Molden's athletic ability is going to catch up with his mental ability, and it's going to be a lot better. What what you're seeing is going to be a lot better. He's going to get burned. His whole career is going to be him. I don't know if it's going to happen every game, but more often than not, he's probably going to get burned his whole career just because he's not as athletically fast as these other players. But eventually, the what he can do mentally and from a technique standpoint is going to make up for that. 
he's a third round rookie. I am not surprised. I not surprised at all in the least bit that him and Bradley McDougald got burned by Tyler Lockett. But do you know how many actually all pro cornerbacks get burned by Tyler Lockett? It happens all the time. Yeah. I mean, like, it's not, it's not like he's getting burned by Taewon Taylor. He's getting burned by Tyler freaking Lockett. You guys have to understand when you're seeing this stuff is that Elijah Moulton's can still be a great player. I know a lot of people have him dead and buried somewhere, specifically Justin Mello in the Canadian wilderness. But I mean, Tyler Lockett, that's what he does. And he does it to more talented pro bowlers and all pro pro players. So what's the big deal? I understand that you want Elijah Molden to be something that he's not, but that's the thing is that you, Shane Bowen, I think wants him to be something that he's not. And he's not this guy that's going to be able to keep pace with the burners. He's not a guy that is right now is ready for full-time slot duty until everything, the game slows down for him a little bit more. Elijah Molden is going to be great. Caleb Farley, when he sees the field, is going to be really good. Christian Fulton, Caleb Farley, and Elijah Molden is a really good trio. It just is not going to be that trio in 2021 right now. But I got off on Elijah Molden tangent, sorry. But that goes back to the point of Shane Bowen and this defense putting him in horrible positions and horrible matchups. And it's almost like a trial buffle fire, throwing him in the deep end, which maybe that works. I just don't know if that's a sustainable way to play defense and to keep the other team from scoring. And it's, it's probably not, and there definitely needs to be changes, but weirdly I'll say this through week two, I feel a lot better about this defense this year than I did last year. You know, like, and and that's kind of the next piece we're going to move to with the defensive line. But even though the defensive line is not necessarily getting the pressure on the QB I want, they're they're still getting, I feel, more pressure than they did last year. Even though the secondary is, you know, still getting cooked in places, Tyler Lockett's going to do that to almost any team, not, not just specifically Molden. But the team was finding ways to get off the, the field and third down. It's like, I, you just wanted to start with the basics and the team is doing the basics so far, but you're right. They got to grow or it's not going to get any better, but let's talk about the defensive line pressure wise. How do you feel? I, my, my, my take on the pressure on the quarterback is it's, I, I want to see more they're getting there, but I, 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 I expected more. Yeah. They're, you know, they're, they're just outside the top 10 in sacks. Um, so that's a good improvement through two weeks. And then yeah. on top of that, their, their pressure percentage, they were, they're at 32 They and that pressure percentage, but they have 32 total pressures on top of that. That I don't know off the top of my head where that ranks as far as uh, the league, because pro football references, their numbers are not right. Um, but to me, this team looks night and day difference, and especially on the defensive line. And I think the big key to that is Danico Autry, who he himself had a heck of a day. I mean, he just leapt off the page. You could not 
take your eyes off of him wherever he was at, and it's helping everybody else around him, which is what we said all along, right? All off seasons that Danico Autry and Bud Dupree are probably going to help those around him, around them more than they may actually produce, right? The the threat of Danico or the threat of Bud Dupree. But you're talking about a team that had 20 pressures and seven came from Autry, five came from Landry, and Simmons had four of them. I mean, that's that's really a great game for pressures. And it really caused problems in the second half of the game where you're talking about a, a team in Seattle Seahawks that were rolling in the first half, and then all of a sudden they're held to six points in the entire second half. And their yardage, I mean, Derrick Henry had a more yardage than them for the most part of that second half. Um you know, what was interesting to me is how great these last two weeks, the noticeable difference of Harold Landry. And Harold Landry has always been kind of that average to good, never really great outside linebacker. But these last two weeks, he has looked so much better. And I don't know if that's due to... Uh, Crow teaching him, you know, through the offseason won't let him use that one pass rush move. He had developed pass rush moves. And how much of it is Bud Dupree? How much of it is it the defensive line looks 10 times better? How much is it that the, the, the defensive backs are being able to cover? But Harold Landry, to me, out you don't see receivers, right? Sometimes uh, the receivers and the cornerbacks, they go off the screen. And if you're not watching all 22, you don't really see them, right? So you just assume if you don't hear Christian Fulton's name called, then something was good. So whatever he was doing over there was good. So you see a lot of the defensive line and and the linebackers in a game based on the game broadcast angles. And Harold Landry has just been eye-catching for me. I don't know if it's been like that for anybody else. I know it has for Mike Herndon. uh, And he's sipping pina colada somewhere. But to me, Harold Landry has looked tremendous these first two games and that's what you had hoped for it took a while but I think that now that the defensive line and Bud Dupree are clicking that Harold Landry is really starting to turn that corner and be that second round pick that everybody wanted him to be he showed glimpses of it two years ago when he had his nine and a half sacks but you know last year too much was put on him this year it feels like he's playing with less of a burden and to me, it's just been it's been a revelation, Harold Landry. And, and and I think it's credit to the defensive line. Simmons has looked really good these first two weeks. Now, he also looked good for the first half of last year, and then he disappeared. But you got to hope with Danico Autry there that even if maybe Simmons was to disappear a little bit, that he's Danico Autry is able to keep, put up some of the pressure. The last piece I'm going to move to is the offensive line. Um, I really like the piece that that Easton has got up at Broadway Sports Media, which, by the way, Easton's going to join us um, on podcast going forward. Um, but he's going to join it, us as, a, as in his own separate segment. He's going to yes, have his own podcast. Yes. So he's got you know a reaction or not or overreaction for certain pieces, and, and he has a couple pieces on. Is it an overreaction for the following? The Titans offensive line is better off without Lawan, And he basically goes into his piece about how that's an overreaction. 
Um, and then the other piece about, you know, the offensive line is the, the situation with the offensive line is very concerning, which is I'll start with that. I, I do agree that the, the position of the offensive line is concerning, but specifically how they played Sunday. How did you feel about their play? I, th- I think they did really well. I mean, it wasn't perfect, but when you are starting Questenberry and Sambrello as your tackles, you know, it's it's bound to not be good. But the problem is, is that they were the, the good parts because Saffold was struggling with the injury throughout the game. Something is wrong with Nate Davis. I don't know if it's because he's playing against David Questenberry and it, they just haven't gelled yet. And something, but something is off with Nate Davis. Now he did miss some time with COVID. And so you got to wonder how much of it is just some sort of lack of conditioning or, you know, game in game reps or something, but Nate Davis is going to have to rebound. He, he, this, this offense cannot afford Nate Davis to play like he's been playing. So you know, overall, though, it I, I hesitate to say this because I see this in my mentions when I put up the Tyson Brelo stats. It, it's got to make you think, is Taylor Lewan long for this team? And is Taylor Lewan going to go on IR? I was kind of surprised he didn't go on IR yesterday. Maybe they're still undergoing more tests, but that non-contact injury from what I saw in the video did not look great. And his demeanor on the sidelines did not look great. It's unfortunate for Taylor Lewan because this team maybe doesn't need Taylor Lewan based on a one game performance. But I think if you're talking about a team going forward, going up against some of the defenses that it'll be going up against in the future, this, this season and in the playoffs, I think that you're going to have to you, – you need Taylor Lewan back. So, hopefully, he's not gone for long. Look, I know that Taylor Lewan didn't have a good game week one, and we've been all over it, and it's been beaten to death with a horse, that tweet, and, and everything that he's done. Eventually, you're going to need Lewan. You're going to get into a couple of games that are – that are important and you're going to need Lawan back. So I hope that my hope is in the end that he rebounds not only on the field, but also health wise, but that he lives up to the contract of what he's paying. Cause right now, um, you know, because right now we need that. We're going to need that. And I, I'm I'm hesitant to say based off one game, and even though that we saw Tyson Brelo fill in admirably last year, I hesitate to b- say based off one game. Well, we need to trade Lawan, or you know, we need to cut Lawan, and all that stuff because that's what I'm seeing in my mentions. I'm just you know, I, I'm not getting into the Twitter mud per se in these mentions, but I don't I don't I think that's a that's a little bit of an overreaction. Yeah. So. To wrap this up, I I need to issue a semi-apology to Large Randall. Um, Fat Randy came through, kicked a game-winning field goal. Halfway through the game, when uh, when Randall had missed a, a kick, I tweeted out that I'm done. Next kicker up, bye, bye, bye. 
so I owe a, a slight apology to, to large Randall. And I'll say that, you know, look, welcome back to the team for another week, but the kicking position is still a mercenary position for me. It's week to week. So if you, if you, if you can't deliver for me next week, I hate to say I'm going to be back up in those mentions again about, you know, look, I think you got to go, but in all seriousness with kicking, I, I really want uh, Randy Bullock to work out. I, I, I want the, I just want the Titans to not have a long-term kicking issue. I, I forget the numbers now, but it was something like the Titans had been through 14 kickers since 2019 or whatever the exact stat is, but it's, it's a lot and it's way too many. So good on Randy. I mean, game-winning overtime kick, I barely could watch it through through my fingers, but you brought it home, man. You sealed the win. You didn't make us look like fools on the national stage by getting all the way there and missing a kick. So good on you, Randy. Well, and let me say this. We, before we move or close the show, because I know we're running up against it, Mike Frabel had a horrible, another horrible week of poor mismanagement in the game. They called a timeout when they shouldn't have. They didn't challenge certain plays. They called really bad fourth and one play, and then they went for the kick again. So let me say this. He mismanaged this game poorly. However, and you see it in the postgame speech, in the locker room speech, he kept this team together, and it could have been real easy for this team to just, give up especially based on the first half and how last week's game went Mike Vrabel get he gets an F for in-game management but for off the field management or on the sidelines management and in the locker room management he gets an A plus and I think that needs to be said I said it in the tweet from one of my takeaways and it, it was the staff is poorly mismanaging its resources in the game but are on the field, but off the sidelines, he's just doing a tremendous job and this team is bought in. And I think the second half Titans that you saw in the Seattle game is the true Titans that you'll see going forward. Now it doesn't mean that they won't have a stinker or clunker specifically in primetime, because obviously every primetime game so far has been awesome. And as soon as, and it's for how somehow, the Texans versus Panthers will be really great. And then the Tennessee Titans will get on primetime eventually is here soon. And it'll be the worst game of the season. So I, I will say that while he needs to clean up Mike Vrabel, while Mike Vrabel needs to clean up some of these in-game decision-making skills, what he does in the locker room and the sidelines, those intangibles – is what makes him a great head coach for this football team. And this, this these players are bought in. This Mike Vrabel's on the hot seat, this John Robinson's on the hot seat bullshit, just get it out. This staff's not going anywhere. You know, doesn't mean that Bowen, if things fall off the rails, that Jim Schwartz doesn't come in or something like that. But the majority of this staff is, is here to stay all season. Mike Vrabel and John Robinson are here to stay after this season. It would have to go tremendously wrong for any of these things. One bad game is not going to do it. So you guys got to get that out of your mind because if you look at what's going on in the locker room, this team believes in Mike Vrabel and they believe in each other. And that is so important. That is just as important as what goes on on the field because that is the culture that Mike Vrabel alluded to going from his presser last week heading into this week. How do you overcome that week one loss? 
this team shrugged off that week one loss. This wasn't a team that carried that around their neck in a week two. They shrugged it off, and that's credit to Mike Vrabel and Mike Vrabel's um, attitude and the way that he generally just handles this team off the field. So credit to him. A-plus off the field, F on the field. As far as (laughs) decision-making. Let me clarify. To defend Mike Vrabel, I'll use John Harbaugh. Uh, If you look at one of the – now, Super Bowl helps, but – how has John Harbaugh remained the head coach in Baltimore since 2008? Go look at his post-game speech versus the Chiefs and watch the locker room reaction as he's giving a speech. It was pretty similar to what Mike Vrabel was saying about, look, it wasn't pretty, but this is how we get it done. And this is what we are. That team out there that beat the Chiefs, this is who we are. And the reaction of his players to him, That's it right there. Locker room mentality towards a head coach goes a long way. If your players are absolutely willing to run through the gates of hell for a man, that can go a long way. And that's what Vrabel, to his core, I don't want to downgrade what he does because I think he does a lot of things right. But to his core, that's one of the things he does best is that he knows how to motivate. He can get his players to play through adversity and play their ass off for him and for the team and for each other. There's a lot to be said for that. So you're dead on. I I got to bring this up before we close. Obviously, the Titans um, have the Colts coming to town next week. And the Titans enter kind of a three-game stretch that, again, they're NFL teams. You never want to give them too much leeway. But this is a good three-game stretch for a team to continue to balance out their offense, get defensive reduction, get some of the yips out of people like AJ, get molded on, on cue. This is a good building time for that. Colts, then the Jets, then the Jags, because that leads right into Titans, Bills, Chiefs, the Colts again, and the Rams. That's a brutal four-game stretch. It's coming up right after the following three that we're going into. If the Titans are going to fix issues, the next three weeks are when they're going to have to fix them. So I'm glad to see it. You know, I expect the Titans to play well. Again, I got to reiterate – bet that A.J. Brown touchdown line because we I'm, I'm telling you he's going to get his shit together and he's going to score but um, that'll be it are you going to the game? I'm going to try to it just depends on my schedule for the week yeah I'll, I will be out of town unfortunately so I'll be listening to it on the road back from from going to the beach so I get to listen to the radio broadcast but um, I will be there in spirit as people like to say stupidly um, but look if you got the ability to go to the game show up you know, don't let week one deter you. And that's going to do it for us today. It's been a long podcast. We've, we've thrown a lot at you. And again, like Zach said, what do you get to talk about? Ryan Tannehill. He had a good game. Take it from us. Okay. We promise you he had a good game. Um, but thank you as always for tuning in. Zach Lyons and myself, Michael Gillum. You've just been effed. A Broadway Sports Media Production.